Hello, and welcome to this week's Inside OSU podcast. My name is Randy Kluver, and I'm the Dean of the School of Global Studies and Partnerships at Oklahoma State University. The School of Global Studies and Partnerships is dedicated to helping the OSU and Stillwater communities better understand the world and our role within it. With that, the topic of this week's podcast is Brexit, and our guest is the Right Honorable Henry McLeish. On Friday, March 29, 2019, the United Kingdom should leave the European Union, an event that has come to be known as Brexit. This momentous move is the result of a vote in 2016 by the people of Britain to exit the EU. In order to understand the implications and likely consequences of this breakup, on February 5th, 2019, the School of Global Studies and Partnerships invited Mr. McLeish to campus to speak with our community about the event. Henry McLeish has served in elected politics for almost 30 years, including as a member of Tony Blair's government in the 1990s and as the first minister of Scotland after that. He's played a key part in the devolution of Scottish politics and Scotland's emerging role on the world stage. And he's a well-known expert on the EU and the UK. I sat down with him to get his perspective on Brexit and the potential opportunities and problems it could present for the UK, the EU, and the world. Here now is my interview with Henry McLeish on the Inside OSU podcast. We really want to talk a little bit about um, your area of interest nowadays, which is related to EU politics, particularly in the UK. Um, of course, we know that you are a former member of parliament, um, former first minister of Scotland, and have a long and distinguished uh, political career. Since then, you've been involved in academia quite a bit, teaching at the Air Force Academy as well as University of Arkansas, I believe. Indeed. I mean, you know, the only problem about your CV getting longer, it just makes you feel older. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I was in elected politics for nearly 30 years. Um, 14 years at Westminster, MP, member of the Blair government in 97, um, joined the Scottish Parliament uh, and then became First Minister. But before then, I had really an interesting life because school was never one of my big attractions. <clears throat> I remember my uh, head teacher saying when I left to sign for a soccer team in England, Leeds United, glad the boy can play football because he He's useless at everything else. It wasn't a confidence booster, but nevertheless, it summed up my early life. I then played professional football for a while, realized I needed to get to university. And from there, I've been involved in public service now for 30 years elected and 20 years as an unpaid public servant. So um, uh, it's been a very fulfilling career and it's allowed me to visit, be in the States, teach. And I now try and concentrate on the European Union issues, which, of course, in Europe and in Britain is a major issue. Sure. Well, I'd like to, to talk a little bit more about that and, and get your sense of where it's, uh, what, what the status of that issue is. Of course, we know a couple of weeks ago there was a, a momentous vote in the, uh, in the parliament uh, rejecting uh, Prime Minister May's plan. Um, I'm sure you have some opinions about that, but, but I'd love for you to start with a, a little bit of uh, background. For example, um, often in the U.S., the Brexit debate uh, is framed as a urban versus rural or as a globalist versus a nativist sort of debate. It is, do you think that captures what's happening or is it, is it deeper than that? Much, much deeper. But these are two important issues you've, you've characterized. Um, and in many respects, um, this was a decision taken which surprised a lot of people in, in the United Kingdom. Uh, because for some years now, there's been a lot of ambivalence towards the European Union, never the favorite of people. But nevertheless, if you look at it in, in context, the European Union, in my view, has been one of the most successful 
uh, institutions created in the post-war period. 508 million, biggest single market, 28 countries working together. And what people tend to forget on the European issue is that the continent of Europe was nearly destroyed hmm. by war. Yes. 1870, 1914, 1939, we nearly destroyed a continent. And the first great issue helped by people like Winston Churchill was to say, never again in our name. So the genesis of the European idea was to create a structure where people spoke to each other, worked with each other, and didn't fight with each other. So in that sense, the European Union has been a significant creation. But you're absolutely right to say that globalization, the feeling among some people that they've been left behind, but nowadays it's this question of identity. You can see it in American politics, you can see it in Western Europe, that people um, have a bit more disrespect for politicians, they have a bit more concern that they haven't done too well out of globalization in terms of being left behind. So identity issue, ideology, but there's also this big issue about Britain. Go back a century, we in fact um, used to rule the world, or we used to think we used to rule the world, colonies, empire, commonwealth. And there's just a feeling in the United Kingdom that maybe tied to the European Union was not where we should be, and we deserve to be much better. And I think the lure of greatness has been a, a big factor. Um, <clears throat> important to say at this stage, though, that not all of Britain voted to leave. Mm -hmm. Scotland voted to remain. Sure. London voted to remain, which mm -hmm. is an extraordinary issue, and mm -hmm. of course Northern Ireland. And at the end of the day, the referendum was held, and it mm -hmm. was virtually 52-48. And in my close. justification, that's a country divided right down the middle. Yes, it is. It's a very close vote. And now there's talk of a, of a second referendum. Do you think that will go anywhere? I don't think so, although I would like to think it could because it was complex, but the referendum was held. It was against the background of a Conservative Party that has been divided on Europe for over a generation. <clears throat> a Labour Party, which is the main opposition party, looked warm and slightly ambivalent to the whole idea. <clears throat> so what you've got is a position where people, in a binary vote, I mean, it's this idea that you take a complex issue that we've been there for 43 years, we take a complex issue and ask people to say yes or no. Mm -hmm. And looking back now, what were, they ask, what were they being asked to say yes or no to? Without much context, <coughs> without much understanding of what that would entail. A hostile press, we were kind of anti-EU, <coughs> a government that was very ambivalent and has become very Eurosceptic, and you were asking people. And one of the really strange features is if you ask the Brexiteers for a benefit, give me a benefit. They can't name a benefit. It's the idea of kind of, you know, hope over experience in the sense that they can't identify. So therefore it was lost in sentiment, the idea of sovereignty, you know, English laws really <coughs> for English votes, a whole string of items that came together on that fateful day. And as a consequence, much to people's surprise, we voted to leave. To what extent do you think the, uh the bad rap that bureaucracies have developed led contributed to it. For example, um, I know that there are some fishing villages that felt that they no longer controlled their waters because those were now EU waters. Uh, immigration has been an issue of EU immigration into Europe. To what extent did that, just the nature of the bureaucratic modern state, play into it, do you think? Well, bureaucracy did play a great deal into it. But on the other hand, my contention is that this whole referendum, the whole of Brexit, was more about the state of the United Kingdom, not the state of the European Union. And what we had was a situation where immigration became a huge issue. One of the real benefits of the European Union is that we have a single market with four freedoms in terms of finance, services, goods, and people. 
And so what happens is that people within the 28 countries can move anywhere, work anywhere. And this was really exploited to suggest that we were being overrun by immigrants. There is a strange parallel with what's happening in the United States at the present time. Immigration, because of the aspects of it, is very, very uh, difficult issue, very divisive. That was important. But also this magical issue of sovereignty. And we live in a world where no country has absolute sovereignty. But the mantra was, you know, why should the French and Germans decide our future? And to be really cynical, some of the argument was, we won the war, but why are we, why are we in tow to the Germans? Right. <clears throat> Quite offensive, but on the other hand, that was the deep level of mistrust, deep level of sentiment. And we also have in Western Europe, as you have in America, this idea of populism, authoritarianism, economic nationalism. And for that to work, you need a them and us. And the problem was that us was Britain and the them was this kind of mixture of the Germans, the French and the bureaucracy. They're making our laws, they're taking our money, they don't provide protection for the borders. And when you think of it objectively, that becomes a very important emotional case for people who have absolutely no knowledge of the benefits that the European Union has brought over approaching nearly half a century. Is it possible to quantify that? Is it possible to say union with the EU has brought us this much money in economic growth, for example, or this many jobs, or is it primarily a symbolic kind of argument that needs to be made? In terms of the the, the debates, it was symbolic because a lot of abstract issues are involved. And to be fair, we joined in 73, so you're talking about 46 years. You, there's no model, there's no empirical evidence to suggest if we had stayed out of the EU, we would have been in this position as against where we are. But one of the problems is that uh, Britain um, is divided in terms of the geography. And a lot of people look upon this as an English Brexit because that's where the sentiment, a lot of the nostalgia, a lot of the emotion. And to be fair, England is now finding its feet it's looking for identity because remember in each part of the United Kingdom we have assemblies and parliaments, for example in Scotland, but England doesn't have a parliament, although Westminster acts on their behalf. So I think you've just seen it's like a constellation of all the issues coming together and basically on that fateful day giving people the reason to say, well look, in terms of grudges and grievances and resentment, we're out and we're just going to put across to say we want to leave. Now, that's a highly simplistic notion, but I think all the points added together make it not a debate about the benefits of the future, but really making some scoring points about what's happened in the past. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that the, the vote was 52 to 48, um, but that Scotland voted for uh, to remain. Yeah. What was the uh, split there? 62% to remain. 68% to leave. Now, that was quite significant. London, I think, was slightly higher. And what it really replicated, if you don't mind me saying so, was a really a reflection of President Trump's vote and the Brexit vote. A lot of similarities, a lot of similar issues exploited. And, and you know, it's a difficult thing to say, but, you know, we live in a world of fake news. You know, everybody has their own truth. Everybody has their alternative society. And this is becoming a very difficult environment to have a discussion about some serious issues. So my belief is that you can't blame people for voting one way or the other. That's not what politics is about. But what it showed is in a democracy, a referendum is a very dangerous tool. 
In a normal election, in two or four or six years' time in the US, you have a chance to make amends. You can win. Sure. With a referendum, it's final. Yeah, it is. And so therefore, whilst the government wants to say, well, we must respect the winners, in a democracy, you should also respect the losers. So therefore, my fear is that if we leave, um, as we're supposed to do, we will have this around our necks for the next 30 years in terms of trade deals, in terms of a whole host of things. And it, this was not put to the people. They were asked to leave the European Union, but the, the other part of the question was, at what, at what cost? Sure, the consequences of that. So you, you frame this as, if we leave, it sounds like you think there might be a way, a way back. Well, there's a number of options. I mean, clearly, uh, unashamedly, I, I'm a Remainer because I can see the benefits of the European Union. Um, one group is arguing for another referendum. Now, that's quite problematic because even if Remain won the next referendum, what would be the reaction of the Brexit people? Call another one. <laughs> Correct. And it would go on. It would be a never-endum sure. instead yeah. of a referendum. Yeah. Um, the other issue is that the government might have a general election because basically the Labour Party, my own party, is in, in a way pro-Europe and would like to remain. Mm -hmm. some, some people object to that. Sure. But the Conservative Party wants to leave. So they might have an election in which it will be a remain versus leave general election. And there's no guarantee that the present government would lose that election. The other issue is that they're talking about delaying leaving on March the 29th. March the 29th is now just a few days away. And we've done absolutely nothing except squabble, fight, and be tribal in the House of Commons. So I suspect there might be a delay. And then after that, there is a transition period, and that might be extended. So um, it's a bit like the, the, the Eagles album and the song, you know, you can sign out, but you'll never leave. And we might, <laughs> we might be into this... Uh, kind of a Hotel California yeah, situation. Do you think if uh, Brexit follows through that, that other nations might also seek to leave? This is the curious thing at this stage. It, it, it strengthened the resolve of other countries to remain in and to remain united. Now, that's against the background of populism developing in Western Europe. We've had problems in Italy, problems in Austria, Poland and Hungary. There are issues there. But they're all signing up to stay in the European Union. And that's one of the significant sadnesses. The European Union has hit Britain to the point we want to leave. Why are the Germans not wanting to leave? the premier country in the world at the present time, with the premier leader in the world at the present time. Spain doesn't want to leave. We have a situation with Poland and Hungary. They all have their problems. They all have their difficulties with the EU, but they want to stay as a United 27 to tackle. And of course, immigration, um, uh, although it's been exploited, is still a major issue um, for us as it is for the United States. So I don't foresee that anyone else will want to jump ship, but I'm convinced that but Britain leaving, in some respects, the European Union might breathe a sigh of relief because Britain or the UK has been the odd one out, the difficult one. And we've had it through Margaret Thatcher, um, you know, th through David Cameron, through Theresa May, through John Major. It has been an albatross around the necks of these prime ministers. And interestingly, they've all lost office because of the European question. Yeah, interesting. You, you, you mentioned earlier what the, the premier... European leader, I assume you were speaking of Angela Merkel, yeah. who um, has had a rough year. Indeed. She's had, she's had some, some opposition within, within Germany itself. Uh, who do you see taking her place? Well, I mean, they've, they've appointed a new um, 
leader. Um, but not just in Germany, <coughs> but I mean, in terms of well, leading the EU. I was going sure. to say, but I think in Germany, you'll, you'll, she'll be, uh, the person that will take over will carry on much of the work of Angela Merkel. The French are um, jockeying for position, but let's, let's be honest, the, the French are always jockeying for position. <laughs> A great country, quirky country. But it's important to remember that Germany and France, along with Belgium, Holland, Luxembourg and Italy, <coughs> these were the six original countries. And true to form, the French and Germans have kept up that support and have been the stalwarts, much to the annoyance maybe of the UK, but they have been really good. And so my suspicion is that uh, when Angela Merkel leaves, the European Union will have to have a close look at what they're doing because there's two big issues. One, to enlarge the European Union, and the countries are in line. Ten of them that want to join, it's, it's a favourite place to want to be. And the other issue, though, is whether we deepen it, and this is the political integration of Europe, that the UK has been very much against. The 19 countries out of 28 in the Eurozone, it's recovering. It's doing quite, quite well in the circumstances. So it's an institution that's going to evolve. And my great sadness is we should be at the heart of the EU, helping it to evolve, maybe in more in our own light than, in, than we've had in the past. But I say Merkel because it's interesting to give praise where it's due. You know, in terms of the immigration issue, in 2015, over a million million people came in mm. to her country. Mm -hmm. Now, Germany needs the labor, but she integrated them. There's been a lot of squabbles, a lot of difficulties. But what the world seems to lack just now for me is leadership. <clears throat> Where are the great leaders that are taking us to the kind of either the promised land or a vision of a better tomorrow, better society? Merkel, in a kind of resolute way, has been a champion of that. But of course, the other big issue in Europe is that they have a different uh, voting system, they have electoral reform, they have proportional representation, and you know, surprisingly, the politicians speak to each other. Yes. The politicians yeah. maybe like each other. They have dialogue, discussion. How awful that in a modern society <laughs> we would want to stoop to talking to each other. Yes, and being right. slightly cynical, but if you look at the United States, you look at the United Kingdom, there's not a lot of bonhomie around at the present time. No, you raise a really interesting point with the fracturing of contemporary politics and the demonization. Let me ask you uh, one final question. Is this the end of globalization or will globalization take on a new form? It won't be the end of globalization because you could, one sophisticated end, globalization has lots of negatives, but on the other hand, it's about world trade, it's about world integration, it's about a one world concept. I mean, currently, the, the idea of economic nationalism is, 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 is rampant, which suggests that you isolate yourself, everything's a fight, and that, you know, MAGA has become, this, you know, the issue in America. Mm -hmm. And tragically, in Britain, it's make America great again. So um, there are all of these issues around, but globalization, I'd like it to see changed on the basis that the big issue facing a lot of the levers in the UK is the question of employment protection, the question of jobs, and it's quite clear to say that globalization has worked for universal capital, but at the price of labor and people. And the other big issue is the question of young people in the labor market. So I think, maybe not America, because you're wedded to the marketplace in a way that we are not. You have to manage the market in Europe. The European Union will try to do that to make sense of the market, to make sense of globalization, and, you know, if politics means one thing, there's no point in electing politicians if they have no influence. Sure. <laughs> and they just fight each other, yeah. whether it's within the, uh, Washington or whether it's in London. And what we need to do is to show people that globalization is not some wild force that's out of control and will always help those who have. 
and disadvantage those who have less. And we are approaching a kind of food bank situation. America may have had that for a while, but you cannot argue to people that in the richest country in the world, America, in the fifth richest country in the world, Britain, that you have food banks and growing inequality. If that's what you want, that's a policy position. But if you don't want that, then what you have to do is to make globalization work for a larger section of the community than it has to up to now. Yeah, that's, that's right. You know, universities, of course, have always been heavily globalized. And uh, I run a school of global studies. And one of the arguments I make to students, to parents, and so on is, is we're trying to prepare students to have global careers because they typically benefit from that global career, but also we need to train citizens who understand globalization, understand global trends on their own, their own fields, their own professions, and so on and so forth. And so, so for us, it's, a, it's an existential issue. Were globalization to end, what does a university do? No, I, and I think you know, the universities have a great record, and, and why not? Because at the end of the day, we're talking about internationalization. <coughs> we're talking about interdependency. <coughs> and the idea of the European Union is that 28 countries, six originally, 28, got together to talk, to put arms around each other, <coughs> to have agreements for the common good. <coughs> and the common good <coughs> throughout the world should be what we're aspiring to, because we can talk about globalization, but we're talking about international trade, we're talking about groupings. You know, For example, <coughs> NAFTA has been... Um, reframed. The European Union is a major block. China, you have, you have Russia, uh, you have Asia, you have Latin America, loose groups. So the future of the world is about coming together. And there is no scope whatsoever for those that want to you know, be brutish about it, put their country first at the disadvantage of others. Um, so I think that's what hopefully will happen. And if that does happen, well, you can see for young people, especially for students, Nationalism, in my view, is a dangerous pastime. Mm -hmm. It's about love of country, but also thinking that other countries are less good than you are. Patriotism is a much more valuable idea. And I remember reading some stuff recently about Victor Hugo in the 19th century in um, France. He was very concerned about Napoleon, very concerned about French nationalism. And he coined this phrase, he would like the world to work on the basis of being patriots of humanity. Mm. And if you link that to the question of internationalization, you're one world getting smaller through technology. What an amazing challenge that is. Instead of us to be wanting this country or that country to be great again, why don't we work internationally? And if globalization is to work, then I'm sure this is the way forward. We were delighted to have Henry McLeish on campus again as part of the 20th anniversary celebration of the School of Global Studies and Partnerships. You can watch this full Global Briefing Series lecture on O-State TV. Our next global briefing speaker will be Sean Powers, who's Chief Strategy Officer at the U.S. Agency for Global Media. Sean will speak on March 7th at 6 p.m. at the West Watkins Center. And that's it. We hope you enjoyed our talk with Henry McLeish. We'll be back again next week, so make sure you hit the subscribe button. I'm Randy Kluver, and we'll be back next week for Inside OSU.